0: Hello Weird Studies listeners, this is J.F. There's less than a week left before the podcast returns with episode 153. It's currently in post-production and we look forward to dropping it at the usual time on September 13th. Now, to thank you for your patience during our summer break, here's another audio extra, originally released for our third-tier Patreon supporters on July 26th. It's an attempt on our part to get a conversation going on the subject of artificial intelligence and its potential effects on the arts. Phil was kind enough to indulge me as I was starting to prepare for a seven-week course on that topic, a course which, incidentally, starts on September 12th, next week, on the NeuroLearning platform. In the conversation you're about to hear, Phil said a number of things that were immensely helpful as I tried to wrap my mind around this complex material. So thanks Phil. If you're interested in knowing more and possibly signing up for my online course on art in the age of artificial intelligence, go to neurolearning.com. That's n u r a learning.com. And as always, if you're looking for more extra content of the kind we hope you'll enjoy today, consider visiting patreon.com/weirdstudies for a look at our tiers of support. As ever, many thanks to everyone who's already on there. I think the next episode, the first episode of season six will be September 13th. That seems reasonably realistic. Yeah. Um, Not sure that what sense. that's going to be. Not sure no. what that's going to be on. No,
1: we don't know. We'll find out. One, one, pre- one preview though, for uh, something that I am pretty sure we're going to do a show on. Uh, Eric Davis, mm-hmm. the very biggest of homies, is coming back and we are going to discuss the nightland yes. by...
0: Richard Hodgson. William Hodgson. William Hodgson. Hodgson. Yeah. Yeah. Not Richard Hodgson. I was thinking about Richard Hodgson because of all the reading we've been doing um, about Frederick Myers and Hodgson was one of his, another figure in that cohort. Um, Somebody unknown to me
1: previously, but I started reading The Nightland yesterday. And it's funny because uh, when Eric hit us up, like originally we were going to talk about Clark Ashton Smith's Zothique stories, which is a, a cycle of just over-the-top, uh, you know, decadent... Fantasy. Yeah. Lavishly purple, the deepest of purple, uh, s- stories of a dying Earth, like the, our Earth, millions of years in the future, beneath a dying red sun, uh, where sorcery and all manner of unimaginable monstrosities can flourish yes Uh, dying earth shit is is dope and uh the nightland is another dying earth fiction but much less well known and at least certainly less well known to me i'd never heard of it before eric brought it up and eric was eric had written an introduction to mit press's reissue Uh, and it's funny because the way Eric was talking about it, it's just like, you know, it's abridged, but you kind of have to abridge this book because so much of it is terrible. I was, I was kind of, um, I was kind of like, well, why, I don't know, was it still worth reading? And then I started reading it and I was like, holy shit. Like, yeah, there's, there's some flaws in the writing or whatever, but just the raw horsepower of that guy's macabre imagination, his ability to imagine, a completely alien world and also a kind of double barrel weirdness to this story. Um, the weirdness on top of the weirdness of the story is that it was written in the very beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, it was published in 1912, I think. And it's science fiction before we had any of our science fiction moves down. Right. And so it's imagining, it makes you, it's the kind of book I'm finding that makes you realize How much when you're reading even really wildly imagined science fiction, it's always kind of going to be in the style of our times to read somebody doing science fiction shit, like a recognizable uh, speculative fiction trope, dying earth trope, but doing it without any of the accreted traditions, representational traditions or representational tropes that we've developed for that is uh, startling.
0: It is. At the same time, I think we're kind of living in a Victorian dream, you know, mm. like they dreamt this before it happened. Like uh, Jules Verne was writing at that time. Uh, um, Robert Chambers, the King in Yellow has some like they were kind of defining those tropes. It is startling because they didn't have the realities to base them on that we have because yeah, we've no turned truth. those tropes into truths. Um, yeah. So we've turned them into facts of life. So but they dreamt them. Um yeah so are they to blame for what we're, what's happening um is the science science fiction imagination causative or merely prophetic or both good questions i don't know i'm looking forward anyway. to reading it i haven't received my copy yet um oh okay yeah i cover, don't know cover cover the
1: cover is dope quite apart from anything else i love the cover
0: that art. series of mit reissues of uh, old uh, Science fiction and fantasy. What they call text. the Radium Age, which yeah. I think
1: is a brilliant appellation, that period from about 1900 to 1935.
0: Yeah, I love it. There's such Rad, beautiful the books. The Radium Age. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's a superb series. It is. Um, I'm looking forward to reading that and reading uh, Eric's uh, introduction.
1: But I don't know if that's going to be like the. I doubt very much that's going to be the first show back.
0: No. I think we're going to meet mid September and release it towards the end of the month. Maybe the. The second episode in the upcoming series might be mm-hmm. the one with Eric. We'll see, but you know, lots of cool stuff um, coming up. Lots of plans for the future. Um, one thing that we'll be starting in September on my end is a new new learning series of lectures slash discussions um, that I feel particularly. Enthusiastic about, or because because it's so urgent, Um, so it's something I'm calling art in the age of artificial intelligence, which is obviously just an extension of the title of the book I wrote, art in the age of artifice. Artificial intelligence and artifice are of a kind, I believe, Um, and that's kind of be like one of the main topics of the course. This implicit artificial intelligence that's already been with us for a very long time, such that what we're calling AI now is simply the latest instantiation of something that's been around for a long time. Um, Hmm. I read Phil's amazing Patreon essay from uh, last couple of weeks ago, The Witch's Curse. Witch's Curse. Yeah. And so I thought, well, it'd be nice to have a, a kind of preliminary discussion on the topic here in this final extra of the season. Not that I have like some big ideas to share just now. I'm in the the I'm in the middle of the explosion, the detonation right now, you know, when you're doing your starting research and then it's like you're just caught in an extreme slow motion f- like fracturing of your thoughts into a million pieces and they're all floating around you and it's really hard to grab onto any one thing and kind of say, "Oh, this is what I want to talk about." I'm just like in yeah. in the middle of it. But lots swirling around, you know. And um and I thought we could start with Phil's piece and kind of talk about this, this thing, because, sure. and I'll tell you why, okay, to start, why I think this is important. It's like, for me, I want to start with the affect of the time, which is ironic because later, one of the things I want to talk about is the death of affect, according to J.G. Ballard. But the affect or the, the, the emotional state that these large language models and, you know, generative AI in general, mid-journey and all those Dali- put one in. As an artist, like, for example, when we were in Scotland, I had uh, Chad GPT generate sonnets, and um, it generated them in under, of course, under a two, three seconds until they just appeared. I think that slowness was due to the, just the bandwidth more than anything else. It just immediately generated these sonnets, which I think is quite an achievement for a machine, right? Because a sonnet is difficult to... In a purely formal sense, difficult to to write, and uh, and and these sonnets actually made sense. They weren't very good, but they were sonnets. Most people can't write sonnets. They were, te- a they, were t- yeah. they were technically correct, and
1: they were on topic. They were yeah. recognizably about us, even if they were painting with rather a yeah. broad brush.
0: I got one sonnet to encapsulate Phil's general philosophy, and so it just kind of like. Rift on... Phil's, Phil's, really, inter- Phil's really into music. Into music. And then one on mine. And then I also did one on Jacob Foster. And, and it was like, it was reasonable. I mean, most people can't even write a bad sonnet. You know? Um, right. So so it's it's something. And then I was talking to a friend of mine whose daughter is a very talented artist. She's young. She's not even 13 or just turned 13. And she can draw extremely well. And he was talking about her demoralized reaction to these engines that can generate stuff that she can't yet do like like you can imagine a kid who's 12 and really talented at drawing draws like an anime thing uh and then their friend looks at it and goes huh and then prompts an even better anime drawing yeah exactly so so what worries me is that in the development of an artistic imagination development of an artist there's a whole zone a whole kind of phase there that has to do with imitating and emulating, and aspiring, like basically modeling your work on the works of others. And this is the zone that AI operates in, right? Because it's simply Mm -hmm. through algorithms, it imitates, it regurgitates, it repurposes. And I'm worried about the effect that these tools will have on these young imaginations. Because if I can feel it, you know, and you said in your piece, you were talking about the potential the, the eventuality, it almost seems, of an AI generating a weird studies episode that's recognizably a weird studies episode. Yeah. Um, and that, that is demoralizing.
1: Yeah, Diss- it's just dishonest
0: is. to say otherwise. Yeah. So it's, I want to explore that affect. I want to explore how maybe there is a kind of still a kind of ontological difference between what's going on in the life of a human artist and what these things are doing. Um, but that has to do with exploring what thinking means, what intelligence means. So all these questions I want to kind of explore without having a kind of a pre-made thesis um, in this fall course. So I'm hoping that I'll be joined by people who are interested in this question and who want to explore it with me and discuss it. So really looking forward to that. Do you know what I mean, that feeling? That, I mean, oh, that's kind of, of what your piece is about. So I'll let you speak yeah. to that for a bit. Well, I can't imagine
1: that there's really anybody who isn't feeling some kind of threat, not because I think necessarily that AI will ever learn uh, to, for example, emulate the particular kinds of conversations you and I have, but I can't, uh, I can't rule it out. You know, one thing I say in that piece I wrote is that AI is opaque for more than one reason. Like I lead off by saying, well, AI has had quite a year like we were just at DC and although we you know talked about a lot of other things at DC than just AI it was AI where the action was all the all the heat was around conversations pertaining to AI and you know AI has had quite a year and it seems to me that although AI has a history that goes back into I think the 60s so basically the dawn of modern yeah the dawn of modern computing yeah At the same time, something happened this last year that makes where we are now with it discontinuous from where we were, Uh, and and you know the creation of these large language models has something to do with that. But you know, if I were to characterize what feels different about AI, and from talking to researchers at DC, what feels different to them is the feeling that we don't any longer have any real linear comprehension of how outputs arrive downstream from inputs no because like they are you know you put in you put in the prompt and somehow it's on it comes out that has some maybe you know these particular sonnets you generated weren't that amazing but like but still technically correct and 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 more or less
0: accurate uh nobody taught this thing what a sonnet was it taught it taught itself um yes. so these are black box neural nets. So they have no we have no access to the inner workings of them, from what yeah. I understand again. Yeah. yeah. And 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 the black boxness of it is not just
1: in terms of like what's going on under the hood, what is it thinking about? Can we even use the word thinking to describe what it's doing? Like, there's that aspect of the phenomenon that's black box, but also the development of it, how it presents itself over time is a black box. Uh, There was a moment at DC where Dee, the AI researcher... Dee Young. was her last name? Dee Young? Yang, yeah. Yang. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, where you asked a question where, you know, Dee was talking about how certain things that people worry about are unlikely to happen and you you put it in a much more articulate way than i am but something to the effect of yeah but did you ever guess that we were going to be here yeah. <laughs> you know like was the path to this point in any way predictable and the answer is no and so like one line i have in the piece i wrote is like we might be thinking of ourselves like we look at ai and we're like oh fuck is that thing coming for my my livelihood and so we cast ourselves as John Henry in our mind like another you know, famous folk tale of John Henry competing against a steam hammer and winning but you know killing himself a, a pyrrhic victory killing himself in order to beat the machine i was like but we're not even john henry because like you know a steam hammer is at least a comprehensible thing ai is like something from a tale of cosmic horror that's like shuddering and pulsating and writhing and metamorphosing through countless prismatic uh, transformations too quick for the mind to to follow. Mm. Like we can't know where it's going to be. And so like we see what it's doing now and already it's like, oh, whoa, shit. (laughs) But then there's also the question of like, where is this going? What will it be capable of? And the social transformation seem incalculable. Like with any technology, you might be able to calculate some things, but like, okay, Let me give you an example. Just this morning, I was taking a walk with my dog and I was listening to a podcast on my hearing aids because I'm somewhat deaf and I have hearing aids. And modern hearing aid technology is fucking incredible. Like most people have no idea that you're wearing them. They're very uh, low profile. Uh, I have these things on my ears and I can just play a podcast on my phone and have it play through my hearing aids, it's like a voice in the center of my head. I'm like that guy in Empire Strikes Back who helps Lando do the thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. like he, he receives a message and his eyes yeah. open real wide. The android I'm like that guy. guy. The cyborg, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I'm like that guy, Yeah. right? And I read recently before the AI explosion uh, that, Hearing aid technology is going to be one of those things that migrates from people who need it for because they have a disability to people who just want it, which has happened many, many times in the past because of all the shit that they're going to be able to get hearing aids to do. And it occurred to me while I was on my walk, oh, you know, the Star Trek Universal Translator? Yeah, that is going, already that will that yeah. will exist. I think it already a, does
0: in experimental form formats, yeah. at least. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But it'll become commercially available. I think probably pretty soon because voice recognition on AI is incredibly good. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, like you know, being able to recognize words, and you know, you'll get like instantaneous translation in your ear. Um, and I can imagine it would also very quickly give you prompts for things you could say but then if you're talking to somebody who also has a headset enabled to decode languages you don't even need to speak in their language they can figure you out so basically it's like fucking star trek yes we're like every so everybody is basically going to have a un translator in their pocket at all times that's going to be like yeah that's like some tower of babel shit Yes, exactly. We're going to be able to get together and fuck with God now. Are we?
0: Are we? Or are we just <laughs> fooling ourselves? Because I think well, that I'm kinda that's- I'm
1: kind of kidding around. No, no, I know. I, am, I know. I'm playing uh, along. And I am kind of baiting you a little bit, but don't you think this is like a kind
0: of a- No, no, no. I think that that it technology- Makes us feel like we're in some kind of crazy story here. Uh, totally, totally. But I think that if you, if you, if you give it a bit of thought, such a development would be absolutely tragic uh, despite its use utility. I think what, that's a perfect example, that prospective technology, that theoretical thing of like uh, uh, an immediate universal translator that's not even visible. Like, it's not like you're holding, you're like, you got these huge, you know, earphones <laughs> on and you're like, yeah. like a guy sitting in the UN like uh, and waiting for the interpreter to translate. No, no, this is an immediate boom. Like people will be talking to you in Mandarin. You'll be hearing them in English. And, of course, that seems like a wonderful thing. It all goes along with the dream of a kind of a global culture, uh, the the technocratic utopia. The problem Mm -hmm. is that it completely disincentivizes language learning, uh, which I think is absolutely essential for developing the capacity to think. You don't Mm -hmm. need to become fluent in a second language, but you need to expose yourself to the intricacies of other languages to learn how to think. Because the danger is that if you're monolingual and I'm talking like truly monolingual, I think most people have enough linguistic intelligence to know otherwise, but if you're a truly monolingual person would not be able to differentiate words from things, a Mm. word would be the thing it is. That's, you know. Um, Yeah. I see what you're saying. So knowing more than one language imposes upon you a relativization of language such that thought becomes extra-linguistic. One of the big problems with artificial intelligence is that it's convincing us that thought and language are the same thing, which they aren't. So uh, in a world where I can understand what anyone says to me in fluent American English is a world in which I have no incentive to learn another language. And again, it's this tendency present in all these technologies to ensconce us in a kind of ambient solipsism. And and I think that that's, uh, first of all, it's not like this is a new threat. Most of the damage is already done, I think. The reason we're so alarmed by Chad GPT, I think, is partly a function of the fact that we have convinced ourselves that thought is X when thought is something altogether different. We've given ourselves a model of thought that we could emulate in a machine. And then when the machine starts doing that, we think that it's doing what we've been doing all along. But as Heidegger said, and this is one a book I've been rereading. It's really fascinating. A later work by him called "What Is Called Thinking." He says the most thought provoking thing about our thought provoking time is that we're still not thinking. And the whole text is in a uh, typically Heideggerian kind of like not rumination, but uh, delving into the concept of thought until it becomes very, very strange indeed. And his his thesis is not so much that we're not thinking, but that the object of thought, that which calls on us to think. It's constantly receding. And that thing has nothing to do with metaphysics or language. It is something that is, has everything to do with time and embodiedness and, and Dasein and being in the world. And that's precisely the thing that AI can't even begin to grok. Like, so, right. so thinking is utterly different, perhaps utterly outside of the realm that we're discussing here of ai it might be that thinking is a radically different thing that is extremely rare i was listening to a, a recent episode of entitled opinions with um uh anna Ilyevska. she does french and italian literature at stanford and she was talking to robert harrison about mm-hmm. uh ai and um And she starts by talking about thought. And one of the things she says was that, you know, thinking like reading and writing and talking is a rare skill, is a skill that needs to be developed. She's like, you can be a very smart lawyer. You can intellect within a particular epistemic field, for example, law or medicine, and never think. Thinking is rare. This is something that's very Deleuzean, too. Like, for Deleuze, uh, thought is profoundly, fundamentally creative and extremely rare. And in fact, we don't like thinking. It's not fun for humans to think. Pascal says famously, right? It's like, uh, all of human misery. Um, I wrote this down. I wrote it in French. I'll have to translate it. Um, Here, he said... Okay, uh, all human misery stems from our inability to sit quietly in a room, which reminds me of what uh, Kerry O'Brien told you about most people preferring a mild electric shock to being left alone in a room for five minutes. Why? (laughs) Why do we fear being alone in a room? Because uh, being alone in a room uh, forces us to think. We don't want Mm. to think. We'll we'll Mm. get law degrees to avoid thinking. Will become mm. great world-renowned scientists to avoid thinking. Um, so, we'll I want to have a podcast called "Weird Studies, Studies" to avoid thinking. To avoid thinking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, and and uh, and then there's thinking in art, and there's thinking in in science, of course, and there's thinking in philosophy. But I don't think our current kind of like knee-jerk uh, appraisal of that concept thought is adequate to the crisis we're in. So we have to think our way to thought as Heidegger would put it. Uh,
1: you know, it occurs to me though, that in a sense, all creative people are now joining classical musicians. We were in the same condition. You want to know what it's going to be like feeling obsolesced by AI? Ask a classical musician what it feels to be obsolesced by recordings. Um, right. By the, not just, recordings like abstractly, but a whole tradition, a pile, an ever-mounting pile of great recordings of classical repertoire. So, you know, people who listen to the show know that I am by training a classical pianist, although I don't play that much these days, but uh nevertheless that left very deep traces in my development as a person, as a thinker. Um and I talk quite a bit about this in the second of our glass bead game episodes. How, for me, you and I have had, at least at the time, a slightly different construal of what glass bead game might mean conversationally if we're using it as a figure of speech. For me, if I talk about a glass bead game, often I'm talking about something of great intricacy, uh, something, a game that is played out with great intensity and intellectual and artistic. Uh, sophistication that only, but the the play is only comprehensible really to the players it's such an esoteric game it is so removed from a general public horizon of knowledge that uh, the question will necessarily obtrude itself in the mind of a practitioner, what am I doing this for now? There is still an audience for classical music. Don't let anyone tell you. Otherwise there are still classical musicians who come up through schools of music. For example, my daughter who, you know, on our little vacation that we were talking about, the whole thing was premised really on picking her up from a summer chamber music workshop that she was playing at. Um, the thing is that classical musicians have for decades now been dealing with the problem that most people who listen to classical music and love classical music stay home. You know, they're always going to ask the question, why should I go to hear so-and-so at the Schubert Club or some concert series? Uh, why should I go to hear some new rising hotshot pianist playing Liszt's La Ella, for example? When there is a, a farmer's grip of great recordings by the greatest pianists of the 20th and 21st century, a hundred years, more than hundred years of great recordings, any pianist now is competing with technological objects. I mean, it's different from AI insofar that these technologized objects are attached to historical personages and personalities, right? Mm -hmm. But the fact is in terms of like, yeah, but why should I listen to you when I've got this, uh, when I have technological facsimiles that I can listen to? Classical musicians have been dealing with this for a long time. Uh, Art is possible under those conditions, but it's also a recipe for, uh, I don't know, a lot of malaise, you know, it's like, uh, it's a burden that you deal with as a classical musician that say a novelist doesn't, Uh, or a poet, like, you know, you can say poets apply a very unremunerative art form. How do you make a living as a poet? Probably teaching in a MFA program somewhere. Right. In which respect, it's a lot like being a classical musician. There are very few classical musicians who can live entirely from uh, playing concerts. You know, most have jobs teaching somewhere. Yeah. Uh, But a poet, at least, is not competing against a a, a a technologized simulacrum of them. No one's going to be like, yeah, well, you know, Woodsworth wrote poems. I could read those. I mean, some people do, in fact, say exactly that, but like, that's dumb um those are different poems right you might say you prefer those poems but i'm writing my own poems but with classical music i'm playing someone else's music in my own particular way but the glass bead game aspect of that is that like to really understand what's going on in my performance versus someone else's performance you have to be a little bit of a connoisseur you almost have to be another
0: musician Hmm. um do you see what i'm saying yeah there is a difference though I think you're right. I think in terms of labor and in terms of interest, in terms of like uh, social relevancy or something like that, perhaps, you, I think you're absolutely right. I think that recordings basically did away with a whole slew of jobs, which consisted of playing music live in places where if mm-hmm. you didn't have a live musician, you just didn't have any music. So that it removed that. It's kind of like photography with painting, I would argue. Um, mm-hmm. uh, portraiture was a, a lucrative business until photography came around. And, and so the photographers went through it first. Uh, I mean, Obviously, so the painters went through it first. The, the difference is that in a musical recording, you're still, it's a recording of a performance. So there's no existential threat to what you're doing. You just want perhaps to focus on becoming a great recording recorded artist as opposed to, like, I'm, I'm taking your point 100%, but the difference is that now AI will be generating orchestral pieces yeah. Uh, that haven't and generating,
1: been- and, ge, and generating interpretations of classical pieces. And, and uh, potentially- And and no one will be able to tell whether it's AI. Or and NBA. obsolescing- i telling you
0: that right now. Obsolescing at once, not just the performers, but the composer. So, mm. so the- No, no, I, I yeah, recognize that yeah. there's a different order of magnitude. But yeah, but you're where right. I was
1: but but uh, because AI kind of fucks everybody all at the same time, as opposed to just fucking some group of artists piecemeal. But the point that I was moving towards is that I think, you know, when I was a pianist, it tends to throw a lot of the focus on art as your own development. Mm. Like, this is where I end up at the end of the little piece that I wrote for the Patreon. Right. Is that... You know, AI is a witch's curse. The reason I called it witch's curse is it almost seems like, uh, like the judgment of some malicious magical entity. It's like, oh, you really like intelligence, huh? So intelligence is basically the only human attribute that you prize as a society. Yeah, we put page in music to caring about somebody who you know works tirelessly and selflessly on behalf of wildlife refuges or the homeless or whatever. But really, at the end of the day, uh, the only thing that our society rewards is intelligence. And the witch's curse aspect is like, oh, you like intelligence, do you? Well, here's all the intelligence you can handle and more. Yeah. Uh, and now what? It's like the fatal weakness of the whole regime of technic. Well, yeah. it's a great strength. It makes for makes technic seem like an unconquerable force, but like it's the reduction of the human to being a processor, something that is performing linear rational functions or operations in order to produce things at an ever accelerating uh rate. And all of a sudden, we have processors that will never get tired, never get bored, never need to take a sick day, uh, etc. Like we wanted something that would be smart in the way that we need processors to be smart, and we've got it. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that, like, if it would be possible to imagine an entirely different society in which outputs don't matter input, like, not outputs, like production, right? Yeah. Uh, deliverables, product content like imagine a world in which all of a sudden that shit just doesn't matter anymore because or at least it doesn't matter for human beings because we don't need human beings to to make stuff yeah you have ai that can make anything we don't need human beings to make stuff. And that feels like existent, the end of everything because we have lost the ability to understand or imagine the human as something that exists to do something other than to make things, than mm-hmm. to produce. But the fact is that the human was always capable of more than just making things. The human is also capable of having experiences, of having an inner life, which is something so far as we know that AI can't have.
0: Yeah. And, this, yeah.
1: And, and, and where I was going with the classical music thing, sorry, I'm being even more long-winded than I usually am, is that there is a joy to becoming an accomplished classical pianist. Becoming an accomplished classical pianist is intensely difficult. It's like becoming an Olympic-level gym level gymnast, right? Mm-hmm. For... Very little reward. there are not many career paths for such people, and I knew it, and I always knew I was a pretty good pianist, but I knew I was never going to be a concert artist because and people on that level are incomp they're incomparably on our incomparably higher level than uh than almost anybody working. I kinda knew I was never going to be a pianist like for my living I was never going to make a living doing that and While I was a piano student, I just was kind of okay with that because for me, the great pleasure was being gifted the opportunity to become an artist in that medium that I had the luxury of studying. Eventually, you know, all that music study turned into something else. It became the raw material for a career in musicology that I did pursue as a career, but my point is like the actual experience if we could detach the idea of study as being like vocational education if we could detach the idea like oh you did a degree in piano well you must have done it for something to equip yourself to for some career some way of making money well if we detach that if we say no say no what if we understand those years I spent studying classical piano, just as the development of me as a human being, that's actually what it turned out to be that those years I spent studying piano didn't lead to a pianistic career. They led somewhere else. So it turns out actually I was quite right at the time to really treat it as like the the reason to do it is because that was the inner life, this indescribably beautiful inner life, an artist's life of Developing my art and working intensely with other people who were also on this inner journey that might have some outer consequence, some consequence to our productiveness, but whose meaning, whose value was almost entirely inner. The value was the doing of the thing. This idea is the kind of thing that makes people curl their lip in a snarl. Like, oh, must be nice to have the privilege of being able to study something without having to worry about what it's for. Well, we're all going to be in that situation in about five minutes. And suddenly the idea of having an inner life isn't a privilege. It's not something that only, uh, you know, well off lucky people get to have. Suddenly having an inner life is the only thing that's gonna differentiate you from these machines. I'm trying to kind of get a sense of like imagining a world in which what it's for, what your work is for, your study is for, what your art is for, your artistic practice is for is a stupid question. Yeah. Because it's only ever going to be for something other
0: than making things for technic. I agree and disagree with that. I agree with it very wholeheartedly in, in the sense that I think we've completely lost um, the ability to cultivate interiority, to cultivate autotelic processes, the, the processes that are done just for the sake of doing them. Uh, we tend to think way too much in terms of how what we're doing will contribute. Uh, at the same time, it's okay, I'll give you a, a scenario a thought experiment that I've been playing with. Imagine in the, uh, that in the year 1890, Some steampunk engineer, inventor, created a machine that was capable of cranking out paintings. Totally new paintings so this is an artificial intelligence powered by steam it's activated by a a tasseled rope that you pull and all of a sudden a (laughs) curtain opens and these paintings completely framed with gilded frames start coming out and this guy at the big unveiling pulls the rope and the paintings start coming out and they look like Rothko's and Kandinsky's and Picassos and everybody Mm. laughs at him and walks away Uh, because and he bows his head in shame because his project was a total failure um so it's kind of an ambiguous story because on the one hand you're like well see art an ai will only be intelligent insofar as its outputs are seem intelligent to us a lot of things that that seem intelligent to us now would have seemed like gibberish to people a thousand years ago yeah okay if you went back in time and started to tell uh, a typical medieval peasant about quantum physics, he would just think you're insane. And he would be in his rights to think that because what you were saying, what you'd be saying what would, you're be, saying sounds bananas, would yeah. be gibberish to him. There would be no yeah. frame of reference in which this can make any sense at all. So therefore um, we have to keep in mind that our AIs are only going to be um, as intelligent as um, as, as, as we deem them to be. Now, it, it's possible, because in my story, that AI may have been way ahead of everybody and coming up with the next, the art of the future. Well, then the question is, well, may so maybe the, uh, the AI is even more prescient, even more artistic than a human being. Look, it's, it's cranking out Kandinsky's. But of course, Kandinsky's weren't Kandinsky's before Kandinsky, the flesh and blood person, was around and making those paintings. Hmm. So the Odds of Kandinsky ever arising in the wake of this revelation of this machine are near zero. Cubism mm. would never have developed if some machine had cranked out cubism and everybody had laughed and walked away. The, the, the thing is we're playing with fire because mm. I think that in a sense, we're, we're, we're accessing the possible with these machines. For example, mm. um, Jorge Luis Borges's uh, story, Library of Babbles, a perfect piece to kind of uh, meditate on in in light of all this because uh, the library of Babel, which he describes, of course, the library of Babel is an infinite library in which all possible texts ever written, ever, ever to be written exists already because the language in question has, you know, 26 or 22 letters and a bunch of punctuation marks. And since that's a closed system, um, there's a finite number of texts that can be written near infinite. Well, it's, it's essentially it's quasi infinite, but it's not infinite. And so every possible text exists in this library. Well, the library of Babel in the space of logic in the space of the possible existed as soon as we had a closed system constituting a language. For example, as soon as we had a 26 letter alphabet in the space of logic, all possible permutations of that system already existed. So what we've done is we've just developed a technology that goes and fishes books out of the library of Babel. Right now, the the problem is that there is a, this is where the demoralizing aspect of all this comes in for me, because the capacity for us to generate any, for example, somebody actually developed a a virtual version of library of Babel, and I went and found entire passages of my own work in it that were in there already. I don't have Mm -hmm. the web address. It's already out there. So mm. the thing is that I don't think that what something is for will ever be irrelevant. The inner process of becoming a great musician or learning a language is, of course, its own reward. It has mm. its own. But the, the effort involved can't be divorced from the promise of that effort being of value to others. Yes, quite And that's what something is for. That's the making part of creating.
1: uh, Yeah. And and I think that one thing that is incalculable, but will have to change, must change. I can't imagine it not changing. Is the nature of what audiences are. Yeah. Yeah. That, that uh, perhaps, you know, it's just sort of like, if I go to hear... This is an example, actually, from my book, Dig, because actually I talk a lot about this stuff in the last chapter of Dig, in my chapter on John Benson Brooks. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> never actually thought but thought of it until now, but that last chapter is actually very relevant to the AI conversation and what art is for in an era where AI can just kind of do everything, or at least do everything at a level that um, lazy people will be like, eh, close enough. Yeah. That's yeah, good enough. Not a great sonnet, but...
0: Whatever, in fact, so in some ways, some people, I think it's better because it's more digestible. It's, it's, yeah, exactly. it's conceived, it's preconceived thoughts. Like there's nothing really yes. surprising in it. But anyways, go on.
1: But, uh, you know, one, one thing I, I say is like, okay, so there's a book actually that I would recommend, but called For the Love of It, Amateuring and His Rivals by Wayne Booth, who is known to some of you, perhaps as the author of a particularly good style guide, like a guide for writing style for academics, um, but Booth was a, I think, University of Illinois, maybe University of Chicago, English professor who lived to a ripe old age, I think, into his nineties, um, and is well known as you know a, a, a language dude. But interestingly, started learning cello when he was forty, and that's incredibly late to be picking up a musical instrument. I mean, the time to pick up a musical instrument is when you're a kid, when you have incredible neuroplasticity. Your body and mind can wrap itself around the incredible complexities of playing a musical instrument. And cello is not easy. And string instruments generally are not easy. Your hands are doing totally different things. One hand is fingering the the, the fingerboard, the neck of the instrument. The other is bowing. Um, difficult coordination and Booth started playing cello when he's 40 and by his own account from after four, almost five decades of practice, he was able to make a lot of progress. He was able to play Brahms chamber music, but by his own account, not terribly well, like nobody would buy a ticket to hear Wayne Booth play a Brahms quartet or something. But if you no amateur musicians. Or for that matter, if you have a child who's going to a Suzuki program, like an early childhood strings program, like my daughter did, load these many years ago, and you go to one of those end of the semester concerts where all the kids get up and play Go Tell Aunt Rody and Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, what's your experience there? You know, your experience is going to be like you're really bored. You have this vast Sahara of boredom stretching out on either side of a durational interval in which your child gets up and plays go tell aunt Rhodey. And within that interval that your child is up there, it might as well be fucking Heifetz standing up there. Your attention is galvanized. Uh, You are a hundred percent in it. And the, you know, the setbacks, the triumphs, like, oh, she's getting, getting lost in the middle section. Oh, but she found her way back. You know, that stuff is of intense importance because it's your child, right? Mm-hmm. What kind of asshole would go to a concert like that and be like, well, it wasn't really that good. I mean, yeah, I guess she played okay, <laughs> but like, would you buy a ticket to hear that? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, that's my that's my asshole voice Mm -hmm. Uh, my entitled asshole I want all the product I have coming voice Um, and I use that as an example for a vision of art in which you know art doesn't have to have a public that's something that was invented in the 18th century that is an idea of relatively recent date Wayne Booth's thoughts on amateurism focus on the ways in which amateurism creates little affinity groups of people who know one another or care one about one another people who have a reason to care like oh Wayne finally managed to make it through the first movement of the Brahms F major without breaking down like yeah I don't give a fuck about that if I'm paying for a a ticket at Carnegie Hall then I'm going to expect a high level of artistic accomplishment. But like my buddy Wayne managed to play the cello pretty good after starting at age 40, well enough to make it through this difficult piece that has meaning to me that has stakes to me to get back to what you're saying. Like, I think one thing that AI suggests is a transformation in our idea of what a quote unquote audience even is. I agree with
0: that. Yeah. But I think that that's a, a, a. That will be a Pyrrhic victory, I think, because I think it underestimates the huge contribution which music has made to civilization, uh, which uh, is unthinkable without an audience. So I think that our. Mm, but we're, we're conflating two things an audience and a public. Well, I mean a public. You, 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 you need. Um, you need art to matter to everybody for art to... Get? Oh, yes. I think so. I think so. Absolutely. I think that in a world where I think that this, it's, like, uh, it's like the readers in um, Ray Bradbury's uh, Fahrenheit 451, the people who gather in the wilderness to memorize texts and then burn the books themselves because they know that all the books will be burnt anyways. But they're dwindling numbers. They're ever... Uh, um, Narrowing a capacity to even understand what it is they love, because there's no social dimension anymore to this thing that they're doing. Like I think, of course, that, of course there's a social dimension to it. They're well, there is so, so long in as, the woods. Yes, and, I know. But and you might say, well, that's
1: not a very nice social dimension. But you can't say that it simply destroys no. the domain of the note. Social what I use the art. word a
0: pyrrhic victory. That's what I'm saying. So it is a victory. But it's not the victory we should be aiming for in our culture. That we'll have cloistered little groups that still enjoy things that everybody need. Um, it just doesn't seem like uh, it's it's good. I mean, it's it is what it is. It's the glass bead game. But I'm hoping but, but, that that there are fundamental truths about art and about creation and becoming that can. Um, contribute to the development of an epistem that would allow us to maintain a, the 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 primordial valuation of art that we once had as a culture um and uh that sounds kind of like conservative but um and and when i mean art i mean po- poesis as opposed to techne so i just want i think that the the creation aspect, which has anything to do with the process of becoming, with becoming a great musician, and other people who are also in that process of becoming in some way, participating in that and forming communities. That's obviously absolutely essential. That's kind of like the battery that motors the whole thing. You need those cultures. But at the same time, um, if there's no reason to do something, if there's no making involved in the creating, if there's nothing made at the end, I think that you'll have dwindling numbers of people even able to understand, the to even acquire the vocabulary to think in those terms as time goes on. And we've seen this, you know, less and less people listen to classical music. And um, mm-hmm. I don't think it will ever go extinct so long as there are people there to gather and and discover what this is. But I think it's in everyone's interest to discover what's going on in that in those art forms. And I think that if nothing else, this AI miasma is just getting in the way of our, seeing that, of our experiencing that. And I agree with you. I think that the, the power of art has everything to do with, with uh, becoming and time, embodiment, the moment, the event, the, the, the now, the performance, right? But we, we don't have an artistic theory to back that up. Because of technic, we've been uh, forced into an epistemic model of art, which is simply inadequate to the reality of art. So before we settle for small glass bead game, kind of like Castellias that will preserve the knowledge that within in the, in the coming dark age, maybe there's a chance of developing an epistemic model that will save art from that fate. So that's what the course that you're going to be giving will do. It will do that. By the end, everyone yes. will know what to do next, how to proceed. Yes. Yeah, Exactly. So uh, so that's a
1: pretty good selling proposition for your course.) <laughs> <I think. laughs>